Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. I hope you're having a great day. Welcome to the Coast View. We're celebrating coastal Mississippi and especially the people who are making this a better place to live, work, and play. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. How are you? Good. Super Bowl was a good one yesterday. I told you. Your Chiefs won. <laughs> I was for the 49ers. Sad. More but, importantly, I won $50 on that fourth quarter. <laughs> Patrick Mahone was unstoppable late in that game, man. So he, he deserved it. What, a, what an amazing player. He's going to Disney World. Yeah, he's going to Disney World. Um, this morning is a special, special day. We're going to be celebrating a man who's made a substantial contribution to coastal Mississippi. In a segment that I call Legends of the Coast, these are people who are no longer with us but left an incredible legacy. They changed life here in coastal Mississippi. He's about to get inducted into the Ole Miss Law, uh, School of Law Hall of Fame, and his name is Boyce Holloman. Boyce Holloman was a war hero. He was a legislator. He was a longtime district attorney who fought corruption in the Dixie Mafia. He actually survived an assassination attempt. He was the Harrison County Supervisor's attorney for many, many years, and also the school board as well. A very accomplished lawyer in his private practice. He was an actor. He was a nationally ranked bridge player. And his storytelling capabilities were incredible, helped by his southern charm and his brilliant memory. And he was a good man. Uh, Judge Gaston Hughes, a friend of mine, said of him that he once gave him a plaque that had a door handle affixed on it. And on the door handle were, fi- were inscribed the words... Uh, thank you for opening so many doors for so many people. He said that he went on to judge people not by the money they made. Um, it's a short period of time, Dean and Tim. We got a lot to talk about in this in this time, but I'm so happy to have Dean Holloman and Tim Holloman here, uh, Boyce's sons. Good morning, guys. It's an, it's an honor to be here. Thank, thank you. you for asking us. Thank you. Um, so you both follow the same kind of trail. You went to Guphorn East, raised in Guphorn, went to Ole Miss, Ole Miss Law School came out into private practice that's right so uh tell me about your practice these days oh we we uh, are a family practice uh we pretty much take anything that anybody needs help on that's basically what we're here for and dean your son hollis is now and part yes, of our firm hollis has now been with us he graduated may of 18 so he is with us and that's I think, exciting. I think Tim enjoys him as much or more than I do. Tim, <laughs> yeah. Tim steals him all the time. He might have known my son jordan was in almost law school yes, and, yes. and now practicing down here on the coast um, so Boyce was born in Fruitland Park. Where where is that? Just north of Wiggins. Just north, and he loved Stone County for the rest of his life, Ab- didn't he? Absolutely. He, he, he went to Perk uh, just for a short period of time initially. Tell me about that. Right, he went to Perk. <clears throat> of course, he went with a lot of people that were here from the coast. Uh, mm-hmm. Claire Hornsby, uh, a lot of friends there. And Dr. Frank Gurich from, from Biloxi. From Biloxi. Yeah. Uh, so then he moved on to Ole Miss. He went for one year, and he, and because of the war. Right? I mean, right. he he wanted to get to Ole Miss. What did he find when he got there? Well, he found a, a university that didn't have very many people in it. I think it were down to about 900 at that time. My goodness. And that was uh, – and so he, in July of 1942, he went to – he wasn't sure if he wanted to join the Navy or the Army. How did he decide? 
Well, you know, the, the story he tells is that they offered him a Coke at the Navy, and he and were very nice to him, and the Army was a little gruff. And plus, he liked the white uniform. <clears throat> he did like he did. That's what that's what he said in one of his uh, one of his videos for sure. He trained where to be a uh, pilot. He started out in Memphis actually, mm-hmm. and then eventually moved to Pensacola. And he picked torpedo bomber. How did he decide that? You know, he wrote a letter to his mother, which I have, and he basically said that he picked torpedo bombers because he thought that's where he could do the most damage to the Japanese. <laughs> wow. That's a quote. Wow, wow. So here we are. <clears throat> it's D-Day. He had a role supporting Marines. Tell him what that role was on well, on that, on D-Day. Obviously, they, they had planned on taking – he went to Saipan, and they were planning on taking Saipan – in uh, I think four days and ended up taking seven or ten I forgot how many but they they dropped smoke bombs and things like that to obscure the Japanese so they couldn't see the Marines taking the beach a lot of people from the coast were on that beach mm-hmm. uh, that he you know some of them made it and most most of them made it yeah. some didn't yeah it was uh, when he when he talks about that on on his video it's, yeah. it's kind of you can tell even even his later years he thought a lot about those men that he watched you know coming off on that beach that day. Um, so, D-Day 1 passed, D-Day 2 comes, and Dean, what did he do? Well, I know that uh, one of the Marines on this beach was Joe Irby Sr., right. and uh, they, they they were still on the beach where they should be inland by then, and he, uh, Dad, in fact, assigned himself to his bomb admission on that day, still have his flight book where he signed, wrote, wrote it down, and uh, of course, it was a fateful day that he was shot down. And, and what was so interesting is that he was, he was supposed to assign someone from his group to go. And they moaned, and he said, you know, I'm going to sign my own name. Right. It was a fateful day, wasn't it? He it said was. he didn't want to send somebody else. So we're going to play a segment um, where he describes that particular bombing mission. Kyle, can you cue that up for me? I came around and made a <clears throat> what we call a glide bombing run on it. And I, I didn't like my dive. I got too steep. So I pulled up, and I called the... Uh, observing said I'm gonna make another run at it. No no fire at all. So I made another round and I came back and I made the dive and just as I leaned over, just about the time I started to punch the lever drop the bomb, a hole a shot came right through the right part of the cockpit. And I released the bombs about the same time and there was a hole about right here which just hit me right in the face when it came through. And the whole the cockpit was on fire, and I was on a pretty steep dive at the time. So uh, <clears throat> I, of course, my first inclination was to do what we were taught to do, was to get up and bail out, you know, because she was on fire pretty good. So I started up over the side, and, and then I, I happened to think that, you know, I was right on top of the Japs, and they were killing everybody that landed in there. So I just decided, well, I'm going to take about half this town with me. And so I reached out and got the stick. I was, by this time, pretty blind. And uh, I began, some way, just, you know, I didn't even have my seatbelt on. I began to, it just wasn't my time when you hear this story, and it probably is. But anyway, uh, as I got a hold of the stick, that's the reason this hand was burned so bad, because I had this, that stick, and it was right over the fire. And uh, I began to just sort of, Felt like I was getting it straight. All of a sudden, I felt like the water was getting close, and I just leveled it like I was on a landing, put my hand up like this, and it went And the Bombay doors opened, and it just acted like a hydraulic piston. It just 
stopped it, didn't even move me out of my seat. You know, you'd think it'd throw you a hundred yards out there landing on the water. You can't hardly make a landing on the water with one up and foot. But anyway, then there were old ships, sunken ships all around that had been sunk by the Navy. And there was a little bitty island there called Maniagasa Island. They called it Managasa, I think, out there. Which was just a small island in the harbor there. And it had a whole company of Japs on it. I must have been about uh, 200 yards from that island, in my best judgment, but the plane hit. So I jumped out when it landed. You want me to tell this? Oh, okay. Well, I, I jumped out when it landed uh, when the water. I got on the wing of the plane. The life raft on that plane was kept right behind the cockpit. It had a little bit of things that you turn on it to get it out. That's the way. Well, I didn't have enough. By the time I got that thing turned and got it out, uh, I couldn't use my hands anymore because the flesh was so loose on my skin and everything. So to inflate the life raft, I just put it right here and popped it, and the life raft inflated. It's so amazing hearing his voice and hearing him tell the story. He was a hell of a storyteller, wasn't he? He was. Twenty, my, year, 20 years old. My goodness, 20 years old. 20 years old. So tell me the rest of the story. He... So he stayed on the wing for, uh, that was about 4.35 in the afternoon. He stayed on the wing of the plane. He first got in the water, and he said it started burning so bad, he got back up on the wing of the plane. When he realized the plane was not going to sink, he thought it was going to sink, but it, it had skidded up on a reef, and so it was sitting up high. So he got back up on the wing, and he heard a boat motor coming from this island, uh, and one of his buddies came by and strafed it, and that stopped that. Mm -hmm. And about 4.30 the next morning, he heard the boat motor coming again, and he thought it was the Japanese going to get him until it got close, and he heard the voice say, hold on, Captain, we're going to get you. Mm. And so then he knew that they were Americans, and they took him off of there, and then he took, I think it took him five or three or four months to get back to the States. And then he was at Mare Island for a year and a half while he were, went through 36 skin operations. Where he met my mother. Yeah. She was like a candy striper, nurse's assistant. And you since have been back to the chapel. Yes. Dad's it looked like a hospital ward when they got married because everybody had limbs missing and burns and <laughs> mm -hmm. all of his friends that came to the wedding. But Wow. What an experience. <laughs> it was. Well, he, uh, so when he got out, he taught himself to fly again. Yes. And what did he do after that? Well, he eventually, you know, went back to school at Ole Miss. He uh, ran for the legislature and got elected while but, he was in law school. But he was a he was a flight instructor. Yes. yes. Was, oh, he went back to Mare Island. It was actually, for about a year, he was a flight instructor. Yeah, I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure we capture That's right. that. That's right. So when we come back, though, I want to we're gonna we'll shift gears and talk about when he got out. He went back to Ole Miss. Um, but before we exit too far from Saipan, I want to talk about the quick trip that you, you took there and dove to look for his airplane, and then you're going back in, I think, 2021. Correct. I want to talk about that for just a second. Sure. So after this break, we're going to continue the conversation with Dean and Tim Holloman as we reflect and look back on his, their father, Boyce Holloman, who left an incredible legacy here in coastal Mississippi. And uh, it's my pleasure to share this story with you. We'll be back after this break. for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Into eSports. 
This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having an incredible conversation with Tim and Dean Holloman about their father, Boyce Holloman, who left a really an unbelievable legacy here in coastal Mississippi. And in the last segment, we were we had just finished talking about. Uh, the the pain that he went through, 36 skin skin grafts and all of that after he was shot down at Saipan. Uh, but before we move too far away from that, Dean, um, excuse me, Tim, before before your dad died, actually, you had the opportunity yeah. to go back to Saipan. Yes, we went back and went diving for his airplane. That's one of the few times I saw my dad break down and cry was when we arrived there, and he started talking about his two shipmates that were with him on the plane that did not make it. He had not been back since that had happened. And he, he's still broken up about that. It, it really changed his life forever, and he thought about them literally for the rest of his life, yes, didn't he? often. We have a picture that hangs in our office of him. They saved his life. Right. When that boat was coming from the island, it was them who came and... Well, I'm talking yeah. about the co-pilot, co-pilot and bombardier in his plane. Oh, oh on his plane. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Who right, right. I said shipmates. Yeah, yeah. They okay. bailed out and have never been found. I, I still communicate with one of his grandnieces. Yes, yes. Uh, we're hopeful one day they'll find their remains and yeah. bring them back to the well, United that's, States. Well, that's a, that's a touching story. You're going to go back, though, in two, 2021. Look forward to it. They now have found the plane, actually. So where was it? it was it, it where you thought it was going to be? It was probably within 20 or 30 yards of where we looked. Yeah. You know, it was just like looking for a needle in a haystack. Eventually, uh, somebody else went and mapped all the wrecks, and they found this plane, which is right where Dad describes he went down. He talked about being... 200 yards from Manigaha. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly where this plane is. It's upside down with with the wheels up. Wow. That's that's incredible. Looking gonna, forward to that, Dean? Yes. Well, <laughs> I won't be dying. Well, it's not about eight feet of water, and it's beautiful yeah. water. You've seen the pictures. Yeah, so. yeah. You can snorkel on it. It's not yeah. about eight that, that part of Japan now is actually a big vacation spot, yes. right? It's actually, a, yeah. it's actually an American colony. Yeah. Saipan uh-huh. is. Uh-huh. A, but, but Saipan is to Japan like caribbean is to the united states oh, right. it's a big vacation spot for japan wow that's 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 incredible so he comes back he goes back to old miss pick it up from there he goes into the legislature first um so he was one of the, i mean i didn't realize this but yeah. there were a lot of guys who were running for the legislature while they were in law school while they were in law school william winter yeah was one of his classmates yeah. in, in legislature uh, lots of people yeah so he's a young man uh on a mission and uh, what next? Well, after he got out of the legislature, he was uh, appointed to, by Governor Hugh White as district attorney down on the coast to try to clean up the coast. At that time, Keesler was threatened, threatened to close its gates because of uh, the, the corruption that was along the coast at that time. We had, we had gambling at that time along the coast. It just wasn't legal gambling. Yeah, we've heard that. You know, we, uh, Bobby Mahoney talked about that. Yeah. Others have talked about that. Um, and in fact, when I did a little bit of research getting ready for my conversation with Rick Carter and Terry Green, I didn't realize that it wasn't until Camille hit that it truly sort of wiped it out. Now, yes, it sort yeah. of resurfaced here and there in a small kind of way, yes. but not really again No, not until like we got to the legal days of, of gaming the way that we see it today. That's, that's right. Um, so your dad was on a mission to, um, to deal with corruption. Yes. And he dealt with the Dixie Mafia. Um, are there any particular stories you want to share? Well, the first time, you know, he was appointed to fill a two-and-a-half-year term. When he ended that term, he ran, and he actually got beat. And, of course, when they started looking at the ballot boxes, it turned out that the ballot boxes had been stuffed. Dead people had voted. People that 
had not voted, voted. And so they ended up throwing out. They had an election contest, and the election results were thrown out, and he was actually elected as a result of that. Wow. And what, what, what kind of impression that made on him? It made, I would, him, made I, him more determined. It, you know, <laughs> Joel Blass, who later was Supreme Court judge, helped him with that election contest. And at first, Dad said, I'm not going to contest it. They don't want me. I, I'm not going to contest it. And he got a call from somebody in Biloxi whose name will remain nameless because he's still living and said, boy, y'all can't let them get away, away with this. And so Joel and Dad called the governor, and the governor came down and or set the highway patrol down and seized all the ballot boxes so they could look at them. And then when they looked at them, the first one they opened had nine people had signed in. It was all the same handwriting. My goodness. And so that started leading to the other things, and eventually they found people that were dead that had voted and, quite frankly, people that had not voted voted. Wow. That, so that's an, so who, who was Cowboy Morris? Cowboy Morris was a gentleman that had committed a murder, I believe, over murder. in Hancock County and had been locked up, and he eventually escaped. And then somebody hired him to plot to kill him and Gaston Hughes Sr. Uh, so they had an assassination attempt. Eventually, Cowboy Morris came in uh, and testified. But he was uh, also very handsome, and and so there was a lot of uh, publicity about his his uh, indictment because he was well-liked because he was a very handsome fellow, apparently. It, it was easy for him to convince jurors to... He had a lot of admirers that, uh, <laughs> that Dad had problems with, but uh, eventually he came in and actually helped prosecute those that had plotted this assassination attempt of Gaston Hughes Sr. See, Dad had no assistance. Mm-hmm. So he was by himself, had six counties. The county, no travel budget. No travel. The county prosecuting attorneys assisted in the prosecutions then with the felony DAs. Well, Gaston Hughes Sr. was on the coast, and he was the one that helped Dad mostly uh, when they were now his son. Of course, Gaston Hughes Jr. is a judge also. Right. So what made him so determined at such a young age to make an impact as it related to corruption? I think Dad had a great sense of right and wrong, just period, in his life. He was raised by his mother, Ruth, who was a very religious person and had strong, strong uh, feelings of just right and wrong. He know that's one of his the reasons why he had such a strong connection to Stone County throughout his yeah. life, wasn't it, Dean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one one of the things that always impressed me and it's very relevant for today's times is that sure he had political enemies because you know they were all corrupt when he got elected, so he had to go against them. But he had a knack for being friends with his enemies, and he had, and, and he had a way of winning a lot of them over. Keep your uh, friends close and your enemies closer. I know that Biddle Adams, a real famous defense lawyer back at that time, said he'd never seen anybody like Boyce Holloman because Dad was fair. And, you know, he could get along with people that disagreed with him, which well, I, we need a good lesson of that today. But we, he, he, he was very good about uh, being fair with his enemies. And it, sometimes it would puzzle you. You'd say, why, why are you helping him in a legal case when he was against you? But that's the way he was. He, he principle. Yep. Yeah, he believed in right and wrong, and he also believed in the common person. He he was not a, you know, dad came from meager means. They were very poor, um, and so coming up, and and my grandfather had lost everything in the depression, so they didn't have a lot. So dad was very empathetic to poor people and mm-hmm. to the common person. He was not a. Uh, people think that he was some type of rich person. He was not. He was a very common. Came from meager means and. Uh, cared about people. Period. So he had he had no budget, had really no staff. He was actually became known as the flying DA. That's right. 
Um, so tell about what happened to his airplane. Well, and I think it was '65. We had actually gone, you know, gone to our camp in Van Cleve, fishing camp in Van Cleve, and they called, and the plane had blown up, and they put seven six of dynamite in it. It was rigged to blow up when he either started or got in it, and apparently lightning or thunder hit the hangar in Wiggins and blew it up. I had a piece of it for many, many years. Wow. And eventually I lost it when we in one of our moves to somewhere. <laughs> Dad probably threw it away. <laughs> I thought it was a good memory. He didn't like it too hey, much. So the FBI and everyone worked so hard to try to figure out who it was. Never did figure it out, although Dad had a pretty good idea, but I never heard him mention who it was. Well, I remember him saying that in one of the interviews he did that some of the old F- FBI says, we know who did it, but you don't want to know. And so whatever that meant, but uh, I think Dad did have a good idea. Were there moments in his life after that that he felt threatened? I don't think Dad ever was afraid of being threatened. I I remember four or five times as children, we would have highway patrol show up at the house with shotguns and be down at the end of the driveway, in the driveway. But I never was afraid. I just didn't understand that that was something wrong. I mean, it looked like fun to me. But I uh, got to get in the police cars. But uh, Dad never seemed to be afraid. He always uh, he said, they're going to get you, they're going to get you, so you can't walk around being afraid. So he wasn't. Well, just like when he... He used to make me go crank the car in the morning, which I, I wasn't sure about that now that I've gotten older. What a great, what a great part of the story. That was after the airplane. <laughs> Ten run out and roll up my car for me. Hey, Dean, did you ever get the pleasure I mean, of doing that? I was that? too young. He was younger. He couldn't crank a car, but... What a great part of the story. My goodness. I got his really coffee. Think, he didn't really do that. I would get his coffee to remote control for him. Uh, well, you know, it, you know it, even when he went down... Um, when he was telling that story, there was a point in the story where he said it just wasn't his time. That's right. And he sort of was at peace with the reality of that. If it right. was his time, he was going to take the town out. That's right. If it wasn't his time, you know, maybe there's something more for him to be able to accomplish. But he sort of lived like that, didn't he? He did. He was yeah. larger than life. I heard him make a speech in um, November, Veterans Day 2002. And I think I have a recording of it, but I haven't been able to find it. But Anyway, and he talked about the theme of his speech was big decisions of life and how it changes life. Wow. And, uh, you can look through his life and see major changes like landing the plane and not bailing out and different things. But So his contributions to the coast um, for those 19 years as district attorney was he was fair. He was fighting corruption the entire time. Um, you know, he, he helped the district attorney's office become sort of established it in the modern age, really, so to speak, here, yes. here on the coast. And, um, and even throughout all that, you, as you pointed out, he still had a sense of the average guy. And, and he, even, he wasn't interested in being enemies with his enemies. He wanted to... He, no, he, well, he was. He had a knack for just reaching out to anyone. And they accepted that. His enemies would accept that. It's amazing. So we're talking about Boyce Holloman with Dean and Tim Holloman. Uh, Boyce left an incredible legacy here in coastal Mississippi. Talked about his time in World War II in Saipan, getting shot down, and then his time as a district attorney uh, in this last segment. As we for- go forward, we're going to talk about his life as, a, in, as an attorney and some of the things he did on the side, which made him really a renaissance man. We'll be back after this break. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back. We've got 
Tim and Dean Holloman here talking about their dad, uh, Boyce Holloman. He left an amazing legacy here in coastal Mississippi. And I call this Legends of the Coast. These are people who are no longer with us that give us an opportunity to look back on their life and see so many important and powerful lessons about what they did uh, during their life here on this amazing earth and this amazing coast especially. Um, so where we left it, he, um, he was a DA. And so what happened? Why did he decide to go into private practice? Well, they, they made the DA's office. It was a part-time position until 1970 or 71, and they made it a full-time position. Well, he had five kids, and he could, at that time he couldn't afford to stay on full-time. The DA's also went into private practice. And Albert Nikes ran for and, and became DA. Wow. Okay, so at what point did he – was he doing the Board of Supervisors almost immediately? Yeah, he became board attorney almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he also was junior college attorney and the school board attorney, so he, he represented all three of them. So he had a lot going on. Yes. Um <laughs> Five kids he had to put us through Ole Miss, too, or some of us through Ole Miss. <laughs> so criminal defense work was became yes. ra- pretty rapidly his – Yes. Well, tell, he, tell us about that, he did, Well, he did, he did criminal defense and uh, uh, some very big cases and very interesting. It would take two days to talk about. But, yeah. but, um, but he and Albert became big, big <laughs> fighters in the courtroom. They were warriors. Judge, they were warriors. And Judge Rubel Griffin, I mean, some of the cases they tried a couple times because of going up on appeal and coming back. But it was uh, World War Three when they were in the courtroom because they were both booming and Albert learned from the best. And so uh, it was something to be seen. And uh, it was uh, – but Dad, he wasn't scared of anything, like as we've already said. And he, he, he would take on the, the best of defense cases. And How long and did that – how long did that – that warrior um, relationship last. Well, it was I, a long time. Well, Albert came out in eighty two ish, yeah, and then uh, Kono and Kono, yeah, you know. Yeah. So that that, but then it became the federal courts, and then the battles became with U.S. attorneys and special prosecutors and the FBI and fighting the political cases that he really represented defendants and and uh, he he was always in the middle of Senate pro temp or judge or or city official. I mean, it was just constant cases where there were 30 boxes for me to carry around <laughs> oh, yeah. and we, we had some cases where there were big cases that he he did it for free because he didn't think it was right what was being done and uh some big names on this coast were represented by dad and he never charged them because one they couldn't afford it number two what was being done to them was wrong and he knew it was wrong and he fought and won wow so that, uh, that made a tremendous impact on you guys didn't yes it? absolutely yeah. i mean when we started practicing law, and I started in 1980, so I'm now in my 40th year. This is my 40th year anniversary. I just got a notice on it. Uh, Ironically, it's the same year that he is inducted into the Hall of Fame. Fame. Same weekend, there's going to be the wow. reunion. So Congratulations. Great, but it yeah. uh, doesn't seem like it's been 40 years. Yeah. But Dad always had, as we started practicing law with him, you can't imagine how great that was, not, not just because he was our father, but to learn from him was amazing. His ability in the courtroom, he never missed anything. And sometimes he would pick on something small that you would think is totally insignificant. And by the end of the trial, he had worked it into the defense and, and would win with that. Funniest thing about him is I, even as a child, I remember this, we'd be in the courtroom because we used to go to the trials when we were kids. And Dad would turn and wink at you, and you knew something was fixing to happen. Then when we started practicing law with him, you'd be sitting beside him in the courtroom, and he'd turn and he'd wink at you. And you'd know something was fixing to happen. You didn't know what it was, and he would call some big stir, and it was a lot of fun. It wasn't just uh, learning, but it was just fun to be with him. So it was these qualities in the in the courtroom that helped him begin to realize that 
hey, there's something about performing. Yeah, yeah. That, performance. Yes. So when did he start acting? Late, uh, when he started practicing law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> late seventies, though, he started but, the stage. But then he Mid, really, mid seventies. He really got into it later and started. Well, probably after we started practicing law, then we were working and he had more time to act. And so he really got into it and did movies and. But it wasn't. I mean, theater. yeah, it wasn't just local theater. It was. Uh, no, it, was he, it was the real deal. Yeah, right? he tried. I went out to Hawaii with him in 1980, where he did the Clarence Darrow show for the National District Attorneys Association. Yeah. Albert and Lewis Indy case were there, and and all great characters out there. But he he did the show out there, and it was a great experience. He did that in Washington D.C. Also, the one man show Clarence Darrow did it in Washington D.C. He did that all over the country. Is that on but tape somewhere? It is. We yeah, have we do some have tape. some tapes of it. It's a really great. I didn't show. see it on YouTube. We need it needs to be yeah. on YouTube. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, so what were some of the movies that he got involved with? I think he, the best movie he ever was in that I, I liked the most was Eudora Welty's Ponder Heart. That was a really a good movie. Uh, he had he was in Stone Cold with simple, Brian Bosworth. Simple Twist of Faith, which was a Steve Martin movie, and um, yeah, I mean that he, was a good movie. So why why did you like the Eudora Welty movie? Tell tell what was the? It was just a good Southern movie about he was a Southern gentleman in that case, and it's just a, it's a cute movie. It's not a long movie. It's yeah. one of those movies you just enjoy. Yeah, yeah. And he had a a long part in that one. I thought, mm-hmm. and uh, he was really that was a good show. It had some good actors in it. I mean. He was in uh, in Heat of the Night with Carol O'Connor several times. Many too. times. In fact, my mother-in-law just last week said she was walking through her living room down in Tampa. She's 84-ish and said she heard a voice and looked at the TV screen and there he was. <laughs> so, I get that a lot. Yeah. That, that's incredible. He sort of settled into a judge role along the way. Yes. Didn't yeah. He? Yeah. And he played it just masterfully. He got blown up behind Sherman Muse house one time on the Bayou in one movie. <laughs> <laughs> He, he sentenced the that was Stone Cold. He got sentenced, sentenced the bikers to prison, and then he was getting in his fishing boat behind Herman's house, and they blew him up. Not really, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where did the the love of bridge come along? You know, that was always he was always a card player. He played cards. You know, he played spades, whatever they played at Perk and at Ole Miss. And yeah, I remember him telling the day Pearl Harbor occurred. He uh, said they were playing cards at Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. He was already up there by then. Maybe it's Perk because. 41, I guess, and uh, somebody came in and said they just, Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor, and he says, where in the world is Pearl Harbor? And they knew, you know, nobody had heard of it by then, and then everybody knew, but anyway, I, he did love cards, and uh, I tell you, we would sit down on a New Year's Day at his house and cook, and we'd get to be playing cards, and he'd walk through the room, and, and then later today, the he'd say, let me play, and he'd sit down, and when, by the time he got through with us, we didn't have anything left. <laughs> <laughs> he was a card, he could count cards. Did he, he always he, have his cigar? He chewed them after 1980. Before 1980, he smoked them, but he never smoked one after 1980. He just always chewed on it. That's so interesting. They used to tell stories about him putting a toothpick in it in the courtroom back when you could smoke in the courtroom and let the ash get real long and everybody would be watching the ash rather than listening to whatever the other side was doing. I remember a metal building right off of the beach somewhere around o- 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 Oleander Avenue. Yes, yeah, Bridge, Bridge Club. Club. Well, Bridge Club. And so, so I asked someone once, I, we didn't talk about any of this, but I, I, I asked someone once, why is how do they afford the bridge club and someone said oh boy solomon plays there <laughs> so apparently he was uh kind of a big benefactor of some sort he was a well, he was a master bridge player he he was, he was nationally brilliant. ranked well international really he and omar sharif played together and i saw a of picture of them two together yeah i wondered was it bridge that brought them together yes 
Wow. Yes. Well, they actually did a they did a uh, lease for a voting precinct too. That was they got paid by the county to use it as a voting precinct. Oh, the bridge club. Yes, the bridge club. Or center but stage. That was part yes. of it. And center stage they created too. Center not, stage. Not right. bad, but they. Right. It was over. It used to be on Calderine Road, and yeah. the, the lights for the stage were in coffee cans, light bulbs. That's, yeah. that's what they started with. Did so, cat on a hot tin roof there. So he helped them become oh, yes. know, more what they are today. So yeah, and Chuck White and the big, big choice lead. Yeah, Shorty. I got Shorty on next week. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think this week, actually. I think if he had gotten into acting earlier in life, he might have been a famous actor. I'm not sure. He would have been a famous actor. He I, would have been a, a, a he very loved famous. acting. He really did. <laughs> So, so coming back to his his private practice, and in this in this final segment, which is coming up here shortly, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about his legacy and lessons learned, and you know, looking back on this man and what kind of legacy he left here in coastal Mississippi. But um, but you know, he would defend these big cases sometimes for free, as you mentioned, Tim. But at the same time, he still had all these other things going on inside yeah. the practice. There was no case so small, no case too big no. that he would be involved in. Um, what did you learn about that from him? Well, I learned that he he was such a giver, and I know that people, you know, I started practicing in 82, and people would come in that office that wanted to see him, and they'd sit there all day long until he got there. He might come in. He'd work from his chair at home early, early, but he might come to his desk at 4 o'clock. And they'd be there at seven o'clock, and uh, he he. But you know, he gave them his time when he could give it to them. Mm-hmm. But he never stopped. I don't. I, the man probably slept three hours a night. He just he he he's, it was it was amazing. Wait, what's that? What's he loved that people. They loved helping people, and I think that's what we learned from him most. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, the it's really about helping people. Practice of yeah. law is lawyers help people, and sometimes we get a bad name for it. But the truth of the matter is, you're there to help people. I, the you know Gaston Hughes talking about giving him that plaque with the door handle on it. Yeah, you know I've never heard it's that true. before. Yeah, but um, you know because he'd opened so many doors for so many yeah. people. A lot of lawyers went yeah. to his office, and now big you know good lawyers here yeah. on the coast. Lots. Were we going to were you going to add something to that? Too? Well, that's he took the words yeah. out of my mouth. I mean, he had a lot of great <laughs> young lawyers that went through his office, became great lawyers. You know, there's a theme in some of the some of the people that I've talked to um, that some of the most proud moments was mentoring others and bringing them along. And you know, if we were to sit down and understand the the number of leaders in coastal Mississippi that were mentored by just a few people, I mean, they they set the coast on the, on its course from a leadership perspective because they had these people early in our history that were willing to mentor them. It's incredible uh, what I'm learning as a result of this conversation and this, this show's Coast View. We're going to be back after this message, but I, as I said, we're going to reflect just for a few minutes about the legacy, um, and then, you know, life goes on after he dies, but, but he left an incredible legacy. We're talking about Boyce Holloman. We'll, we'll be back after this break. It's a great time to be on the coast, and we love talking about it. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. I've got Tim and Dean Holloman here talking about Boyce Holloman's legacy. It's been so much fun having this conversation. What an incredible character and uh, and legacy, uh, Boyce Holloman. Tim. June 17th is an important date to you for two reasons. What are those dates? It was the date I was born, number one. Number two, it was also the day that Dad was shot down over Saipan. Wow. Obviously, a few years before I was born, but yeah. I, I wouldn't have been here if he hadn't have made it, obviously. 
Uh, so every, every birthday, Dad used to say, and it, when I was younger, it kind of yeah. confused me. He'd say, this was the day I was shot down, which I didn't think was very celebratory <laughs> on my birthday. But he always uh, equated that close to me, but, which is why I think he took me with him when we went to Saipan. Hey, and, and on mine, mm-hmm. you know, mine, was, I was born on November 29th, 1958. And on that day, he was at the Egg Bowl and settled with me. We get some good advice he gave you along the way. Well, I was telling you on the break that uh, one of the things he used to say, and I love to tell clients, and they get a big kick out of it, you know, you got to be careful. You represent clients, you don't get in the mess with them. And one of Dad's favorite lines was, if somebody's going to go to jail, make sure it's the client. (laughs) So that's a a good lesson for lawyers. Some lawyers hadn't followed that uh, lesson. uh, But he had a lot of humor along with the practice of law. But he impacted people, and people knew knew him. You you tell a story about when he was at Memorial Hospital. Tell about that. Yeah, in 1996, he had open-heart surgery. And so you have to get up and walk after the surgery. And we're going down the hallway, and these two gentlemen were painting on a ladder. So they're up on a ladder, both of them. And as we walked by, they both got off the ladder and took their hats off and put it over their hearts. And so we passed by, and Dad turned and said, you know, my greatest accomplishment in life was to be admired by men such as that. Meaning wow. common people, not yeah. that not, you know, that they really thought enough to get off that ladder and put their hats over their hearts for him. It really Man. touched him, and he meant that was his greatest accomplishment. Well, that, that at the end of the day, that might be one of the biggest legacies he left. You I, know? I think most people today remember Dad that way. Most people that call and come in and say, your dad did this, your dad did that. You were mentioning a closing argument. What was what was that? <laughs> yeah, We were trying a case for two months in Mobile, and it got closing argument. He started out his closing argument, I'm going to imitate, when I was a little boy growing up in Wiggins, Mississippi, and the other side objected. <laughs> we object to Mr. Holloman relating a personal story to the jury, and the judge sustained it. With dad turned back to the jury, and it got real quiet, and he says, once upon a time, there was a little boy growing up in Wiggins, Mississippi. <laughs> told the whole story. <laughs> it went and when the other side didn't object, the jury just burst out laughing. I mean, of course, laughing juries don't convict, so we got acquitted in that case. Uh-oh. And I think it was that story that did it. Wow. But, uh, he made the jury laugh, which was, a you know, humor is a big part of life, and he used humor a lot in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that, too. We learn that from him. There's a time to be serious, but there's also a time to kind of break the tension, so to speak. It, it, it reminds me one time we back in 1989-90, we were trying. I was carried a briefcase. I wasn't trying it. I was a lawyer, but I was helping him. Uh, but anyway, we were trying a case and been in it six weeks, and it was in February. And uh, February 26 was his birthday. Well, we you know real heated trial and jurors are tired. Anyway, on that particular day, they the jury on lunch break sent a note to Judge Jackson said that the jury would like to invite Mr. Holloman to the jury room for a birthday cake because it was Juror Bob's birthday, too. And I said, I don't think we can do that. I don't think the prosecution liked that note. No, so, but that was a good sign. We got to quit it in that case, Yeah, too. we did. Get so, quit. Tim, there was a knock on the door when he had bladder cancer toward the end of his life before he went to MD Anderson. Yeah. Tell that story. I think Dean was telling yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it was a Saturday before we left for MD Anderson, didn't return, and uh, we, we all gathered over at the house to watch the Ole Miss-Auburn game, which we won that Sorry. day. And uh, everybody was celebrating. I mean, all the grandkids were doing the pile-up in his bedroom on the floor, and he was in the chair, just terrible health and feeling bad. And I think he kind of felt like he where he was heading. And, but anyway, the doorbell rang, and I think Annie, my stepmother, went and answered the door and came back and said, there's some lady at the door for you, boys. So well, he got up. 
and slowly went to the front door and, and several minutes later he comes back and somebody says what was that about and he said well it was a little old lady i don't know but she said she didn't have any money she was down and out had flat tire and I gave her forty dollars, and somebody said, "Why would you do that?" He says, "Because she she didn't have it, and I did." And he sat back she down. She needed it. That's what he said. <laughs> That's right. What a what an incredible that was him. like lesson right toward the end of his life. So he goes to MD Anderson, and and uh, you know we know the rest of the story right. now. Um, so it's been a it's been a pleasure to visit with you guys mm-hmm. to look Enjoyed back. It. I knew it was going to be special, and and when I watched the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. Uh, what do you what do you call that? The interview, interview. It was just trailblazers of Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. when I watch that, if you haven't seen it, just do a, go to YouTube and do a YouTube search on Voice Holloman. It will come up. Great interview. You need to watch it because I mean, just the storytelling, the 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 crisp memory, oh, the yeah. names, the situations, and just the way he tells it. It's incredible. He never forgot people's names. Man, man, it was just just uh, just an incredible guy. But it's been it's been fun reflecting you, back. Man. I've enjoyed our time together, and if you know anyone, um, I've got a couple of people that I've that I'm planning a, a section like this over the next com- coming months that I think you're going to be very interested in, and uh, it's a great way to kind of look back at people who had an impact. It's been very enjoyable. We yeah. appreciate you having us. Great way, to pres- great way to preserve history on the coast. You bet. Thank you. You bet, guys. So uh, we'll uh, we'll see you guys later. Thank Thanks you. for joining us here at Coast View, and uh, we'll see you in the morning. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.